At today's 11th hour lecture, we're thrilled to have Hillary Plum with us to discuss, among other things, how one might incorporate fact into fiction, what amount of fact matters, how nonfiction complicates or bolsters narrative, and the ways in which we might identify or distort the boundaries between these categories using the forms, testimonies, images, and documents of the tangible and material world. Hilary Plum is the author of the novel, They Dragged Them Through the Streets, published by FC2. She has worked for a number of years as an editor of international literature and is a contributing and book review editor with the Kenyan Review, as well as an editor of Rescue Press's Open Prose series. Please join me in welcoming Hilary Plum. Hello. Is that okay? Did anyone not hear me? Seems good. Um, I'm going to read a, a talk that I wrote that thinks about um, some of the ideas Carol just beautifully described um, and thinks through sort of three case studies of novels that um, incorporate non-fictional non material or what we might call documentary material, so actual sort of documents from, from history of various kinds. Um, and then there should be some time for questions or chat afterward. So, if you publish a novel about almost anything, someone sometime will ask you about the role of research in your work. When I'm asked this question, I tend to duck it. To write a novel about the Iraq War, I did, in fact, read a great many books and articles on the Iraq War. I watched documentaries and listened to radio news shows. I attended protests and lectures and panels. I tend to describe these activities not as research, but as a practice of attention, that daily I would witness the war as best I could through journalism, reportage, testimony, that is entirely through mediated forms, mine, like many of ours, an entirely mediated experience of a war, and I would write. In the novel that resulted, the Iraq War is continually imagined by each character. These characters never witness the war in person, but the news bleeds into their daily lives, as through those years I made or allowed it to bleed into mine. This was not research, but a way of living that was a way of writing. But such a distinction doesn't, of course, hold up. As anyone undertakes research, she's also cultivating a quality of attention. And in my method, too, I had to establish some relationship to what we call the facts and the language in which facts tend to arrive or through which they're customarily expressed or embedded or controlled, what in this lecture we'll call documentary material. Still, I wish to keep that word research at arm's length because it distinguishes between activities, reading and writing, learning and imagining, that really are one. When we talk about fiction and research, we talk about authority, the practices by which the author has proved herself worthy of the subject, um, the responsibility of the figure who's made out of the real world a work of literature recognizable or fantastical, edifying or entertaining, beautiful or horrifying, exploitative or ethical, the adjectives can go on. These questions of realism in fiction, fiction's relationship to history and to the real world and the ethics thereof, 
are, of course, nothing new. Yet they're also always new, as each generation recreates the form of the novel, and the novel becomes reinfected by history and, if you will, the affliction of historical representation. So in this lecture, I want to examine some significant um, recent encounters between fact and fiction by looking at three novels that place their research in the foreground and engage directly and even originally with documentary material, the stuff of history on which the novel is based or to which the novel attempts to respond. To begin this discussion, it might help us to look for illumination at some contemporary conversations about poetry and documentary material. In DocuPoetry and Archive Desire, an essay published in 2011 in Jacket 2, Joseph Harrington describes how DocuPoetry resists or departs from the romantic emphasis on individual experience and instead attends to the experience of collectivities. Harrington defines docu-poetry as a poem including history by including business documents and school books, as Marianne Moore famously put it. In a 2012 essay titled Anxious and Paralyzed in The Nation magazine, Stephen Burt discusses the work of four contemporary poets who draw on expository prose, as he says, or documentary material, and says, in paths through and under and around economic, environmental, and linguistic systems, these poets address what the critic and poet Christopher Nealon calls the matter of capital, the built-up stuff, facts, and texts that our social system manipulates and accumulates, treats as fungible, or attempts to discard. The poets pursue repertage or take stabs at abstract argument, and their work incorporates, adopts, or deforms blocks of expository prose <coughs> Their books are part essay, part catalog, part collage, and yet they possess the oddity, the density, and the emotional resonance of the language we still seek in poems. Part essay, part catalog, part collage. In considering these acts of gathering, adapting, and editing, combining and framing different types of language, different types of material, Harrington refers to Jacques Derrida's idea of archive fever the mania to define what's in and what's out of any archive. Harrington notes that the job of the archivist is not only to prevent documents from leaving the archive, but perhaps more importantly, to keep out those that don't belong there. This is, of course, a political decision that involves repression and destruction, even as it involves preservation. He reminds us that it's essential to consider not only what facts, what historical stuff manifests within our literature, but what is absent. What facts and narratives do we not include? What documents can we not consult? Whose voices do we doubt? And whose do we never hear in the first place? What must we be left to imagine even when it's unimaginable? In fiction, we may use narrative strategies, perspective, character, voice, and description to establish or to disrupt a relationship between the reader and the historical events that shadow our works of fiction or of which our fiction is shadow play. What can the use of documentary material in fiction accomplish that traditional fiction narratives cannot? How do the we's who are reading and writing these texts relate to all us we's who live day by day in the real world, imperfectly comprehending our own histories? 
In a 2007 essay, From Reznikov to Public Enemy, the poet as historian, journalist, agitator, Philip Metris also describes the turn toward documentary material as a way to express or examine collective rather than solely individual experience and as a politically charged literary act. He quotes William Carlos Williams' lines, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Metris writes, these famous lines from William's Asphodel, that, gre that greeny flower, argue against viewing report poetry as reported news. Yet Williams and many other 20th century poets, from the objectivists to hip hop artists, have sought to marry poetry with the news. Drawing from the ballad tradition and from modernist poets' experiments with collage, these poets frequently employed documentary materials to give voice to stories of people and movements that the mass media tend to ignore or misrepresent. In this sense, they echo earlier lines in Asphodel. My heart rouses thinking to bring you news of something that concerns you and concerns many men. Like Harrington, Metris emphasizes the use of the documentary as a means to correct or perhaps revolutionize the archive, the historical record, to include those who have been excluded. The writer may give voice to people whom society and history have ignored. With this phrase, give voice, we return to the question of authority. How does an individual become someone who may give voice to others? Just how are factual materials, the stuff of history, the matter of capital, part of this act? How does this act occur in fiction through the structure of narrator and character and the conventions of psychological realism? Our tradition of fiction is, after all, particularly suited for telling the stories of individual people who feel and think and act as individuals. So how might fiction use documentary material to give voice to ideas of collectivities or to speak of that which concerns many men? To think through these questions, let's turn to the first of today's three case studies, Peter Dimmock's 2013 novel, George Anderson, Notes for a Love Song in Imperial Time. George Anderson is in its conceit and structure wonderfully difficult to describe. But the first thing to note for our purposes is that it includes as a penultimate chapter the complete and non-fictional text of a memorandum opinion for the Deputy Attorney General that was published on December 30, 2004. This memo was a follow-up to 2002's infamous torture memos and was, in fact, written by Daniel Levin, Acting Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel under President George W. Bush. The significance of this 2004 memo is twofold. First, that in his endeavor to define torture and to update the Bush administration's detainee policies in the wake of the Abu Ghraib detainee abuse scandal, Levin himself underwent the interrogation techniques in question, including waterboarding, at the hands of special forces interrogators. Second, after this experience, Levin declared many of these techniques to be torture. Yet, extraordinarily, his memo ultimately exonerated those who had employed them and permitted for the continued officially authorized use of these techniques. This permission to torture occurred through the insertion into the memo of a single footnote, footnote eight, 
which reads, while we have identified various disagreements with the August 2002 memorandum, we have reviewed this office's prior opinions addressing issues involving treatment of detainees and do not believe that any of their conclusions would be different under the standards set forth in the memorandum. One of the first things we may notice about this sentence is that despite its consequence to living human bodies and to national policy, its language does not possess any of what Burt calls emotional resonance, nor is its meaning even immediately clear. Upon first encountering the sentence, we might struggle to identify its significance within our collective history. Without further elucidation, we might make the mistake of taking the 2004 memorandum at face value and thinking that rather than permitting torture, which is what it actually did, the memo condemned torture, which is what it seemed to do. The first line of the memo, after all, is torture is abhorrent both to American law and values and to international norms. This situation serves as a particularly devastating reminder of the fact we ought to know well, that fictions appear in our discourse just where we may least want them, including, as here, an official statement of great seeming sincerity that performs the opposite of what it claims to state. Joseph Harrington describes how documentary literature may illuminate moments like this, noting that to the extent that docu-poetry tells the story of history, it does so with a heavy dose of skepticism of and creativity toward the framing of facts, particularly official ones, and even narratives per se, especially those that purport to be true. The novel George Anderson is structured as a letter written to a fictional stand-in for Daniel Levin, who wrote the memo. Um, the stand-in is named David Callan in the novel. The letter is written by Theo Fales, our narrator, and an editor of an American history and politics list at a major publisher. Fales writes to David Callan, the author of this memo, in order to urge him to undertake a month-long contemplative practice that Fales has devised, through which he claims that a person may rid the self of its attachment to empire and create a true reciprocity of equal historical selves. Fail's instructions for this practice are highly detailed. To follow his method would mean coming up with a master narrative, a governing scene, four historical subjects, seven truth statements, and eight constructive principles of composition, and meditating upon these in ways and for durations of time he painstakingly dictates. Fales instructs Callan, and through the use of the second person, the reader, in this method with grandiose sincerity, his mental stability increasingly questionable. He is devoted to his aim to liberate both Callan and us from American empire and its discourse to create a society of equal historical selves. His is a voice of the upper middle class, our class as he calls it, Fales and Callan both went to Harvard and move in elite circles of cultural power. I know that you and I are the same person, Fales says to Callan. He is profoundly aware that their class bears a special responsibility for American power and for its sins. Fales evokes the history of torture in the US from the global war on terror back to the brutal years of American slavery. Through his method, Fales attempts not only to counter any justification for torture, but to alter the hearts and minds of those who practiced it to find the means by which all of us might live another history. 
Although George Anderson has a single narrator with a strong idiosyncratic voice, the novel conjures the absence of myriad other voices. In reading, we become newly aware of the invisible and unimaginable experience of these detainees, of the experiences of civilians in Iraq in the last decade, and of the lives of thousands of enslaved Americans whose stories have been lost. Bale's uh, approach is profoundly systematic. Uh, his moral devastation and his unaccountable hope that this very unusual practice he's devised might somehow succeed in making another history possible are palpable through rather than in his language. His is a beautiful madness in the guise of method. As we reach the conclusion of the novel, we experience fully the formal echo between this meditation manual and the interrogation manuals that comprise that most dangerous genre during the years of enhanced interrogation techniques. In those manuals and in this 2004 memorandum, madness also took the guise of method, but a madness without beauty or hope. As we read George Anderson, we experience something remarkable. We begin to imagine undertaking the impossible work of righting the wrongs of history. In its incorporation of actual historical material, documentary literature blends or hybridizes or transcends genres. Harrington describes this nicely as generic scandal and says that it is precisely through exploiting the generic scandal of documentary poetry that this body of work produces a perspective, response, and critique that neither a personal expressive poetry nor a scholarly historical account could provide. This aptly describes the achievements of George Anderson. The novel uses documentary material to force us to acknowledge the injustices of the past, and yet at the same time we share in the hope of the novel's protagonist that another history may yet be dreamed into existence. This question of the personal versus the historical is at the heart of uh, my second case study, the novel Spectres by the Egyptian writer Radwa Ashur, which was published in Arabic in 1998 and in Barbara Romain's English translation in 2011. Spectres also has a complex structure which includes autobiography, metafiction, and documentary material in shifting chapters that depart from then mirror one another. The novel moves between, on the one hand, the story of Radwa, a writer and literature professor whose life corresponds to the author's own, and on the other hand, the novel Radwa is writing, so a novel within a novel, which is also called Spectres, and which tells the story of a woman named Shagar, a professor of history. Shagar was born on the same date as Radwa and in a neighborhood across, from a bridge, across a bridge from her in Cairo, and the work of history Shigar is writing is titled The Spectres. Shigar is writing about the 1948 massacre at Deir Yassin, an event of echoing consequence in the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In the course of the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, in a uh, battle in the village of Deir Yassin, fighters from two Israeli militias killed over 100 civilians, or more by some calculations, in the Palestinian village of Deir Yassin. Accounts of what took place uh, in Deir Yassin have been highly contested over the subsequent 60 years, with numbers of the dead varying, and official narratives on the Israeli side asserting that all those killed were combatants and not civilians. 
So many of the uh, government documents regarding Der Yassine have remained long classified, so that historical or literary or any accounts of these events have had somehow to account for the unknown, that which we have not yet been permitted to know. So the novel lays out Chagar's task as historian. Chagar decided to begin researching the subject of Der Yassine, and she gathered what material was available to her. But as she assembled such documents, books, and articles as could be obtained, she began to discover new threads, which she followed carefully. They led her to an area of knowledge before which she stood amazed, wondering, why has this been missing for all these years? Who concealed it, and how, and why? The prevailing Arab narrative says, they were unarmed villagers set upon by the men of the Irgun and Lehi, who massacred 250 old, 250 old men, women, and children, capturing the rest, and paraded the prisoners in a triumphal procession around the Jewish neighborhoods of Jerusalem, with the result that terror spread among the Arabs and they left, for fear that what had happened to the people of Der Yassin would happen to them. Is this an accurate account? Were the inhabitants of Der Yassin oblivious to the danger that surrounded them? She goes on in that passage to raise further questions um, about this account and what she'll need to discover. So here, as in Dimmick's George Anderson, through the conceit of fiction in the crucible of the novel, we experience a character's encounter with history. These characters' complex emotional and intellectual responses to the forces of history and the documents in which these forces manifest guide and channel our own responses which isn't to say that we must agree with or identify with any one character, but we must hear them. The fiction provides a perspective through which we approach the facts, and there is an emotional resonance to the structure of this approach. This fabricated encounter between the personal and the historical offers more than either just the personal or just the historical could, as Harrington said earlier. The problem of confronting history, what we cannot know, change, what we cannot even know, does not occur outside the novel in the course of the writer's research. Rather, it is precisely what the novel is investigating. This is what I meant when I said that this word research misleads by making it seem as though the activities of living history and writing fiction were distinct. But that is, of course, only half the story. As we all know, novels, too, are players on the stage of history. Many of us have learned much of what we may know about certain historical subjects from literature rather than from nonfiction. This is one reason that verisimilitude, the historical accuracy of a work of fiction, is of such high stakes. And this also naturally raises the slippery questions of what these distinct modes, poetry and the news or the novel and the document, can offer and just why we go looking in one for the stuff that belongs to the other. In Spectres, Radwa Ashur ups the ante by including within her novel a chapter of pure history, specifically oral histories of the battle at Der Yassin that she has compiled from a range of sources. She has taken on the task of a historian, but she performs it as a novelist. As with Peter Dimmick, then, the novel is not only the result of an encounter with historical documents, it provides the documents themselves so that we readers may encounter them in person, as it were. Inspectors, we hear the voices of Palestinian fighters and villagers and of Israeli soldiers and officers. Ashur has tracked down their testimony and arranged it so that one brief chapter offers a choir of accounts of that day in 1948. There may well 
be, uh, there may well be fairly comprehensive oral histories of Darius seen elsewhere, but they are not terribly easy to find, especially in English, and I doubt they are presented with this efficiency and artful a hand. In specters, we may witness such vivid, intimately violent moments as this in the testimony of Dariusine resident Jumazaran. I was set on by one of the attackers who wanted to take my rifle. We fought hand to hand. I got the upper hand and shot and wounded him. He aimed a hail of bullets at me, but I withdrew to the high ground in the western part of the village. The combatants from the village were assembled there. After that, I didn't see any member of my immediate or extended family or our house ever again. Throughout the novel, Shigar pursues specters. She is preoccupied with the voices of the dead, both those who died in Dar Yassin and those of her forebears who died in the forced labor trenches digging the Suez Canal. A clear echo exists between Shigar's work and Harrington's insistence on collectivities, Metris's description of giving voice to those who have been silenced. Within the novel specters, this sense that the past and its stories haunt the present is deepened further by Ashur's discussion of the ancient Egyptian concepts of Ka and Ba, which refer to aspects of the spirit. To modern sensibilities, the meaning of Ka is particularly elusive. In the novel, Radwa attempts to define it. Kinum, the god of creation, has a rotating wheel like that of a potter, his tool for fashioning human beings. He uses this wheel to create two corresponding forms, the body of the newborn and his ka, which will accompany him from the day of his birth until after his death. During his life, a person is master of his ka, coming and going with it, though it remains unseen. The ka has the characteristics and physical features of the person with the same height and girth, the same walk and way of laughing, and wears similar clothing. It might leave the person when he sleeps to go wandering here or there, during which time it might meet and converse with other cause. Some scholars interpret Ka as a person's life force, his strength of spirit, and his creative power. But what is strange is that the Ka does not reside in the person's body, but in his name. The Ka occupies the name, and the name embodies the Ka. Some texts draw a connection between the Ka and the name, which does not die away despite the death of its owner. These texts point to those whose memory remains on earth, even though they did not construct for themselves pyramids of copper or tombstones of iron. Upon reading this passage, one thinks of the never quite explicable web of relationships between writer and reader and narrator and character, these voices and selves that conjure one another forth, then shadow and inhabit one another. The novel Spectres explores this explicitly Radwa Ashur, the writer, creates both a version of herself, Radwa, and a double for herself, Shagar, to exist within this novel, the vectors of their lives paralleling each other through history. I know that you and I are the same person, Theophiles tells David Callan in George Anderson, David Callan a specter of a real man whose actual words we may read. On the one hand, the statement of Fales is an act of empathy, of identification, of complicity and responsibility. On the other hand, this statement is simple fact, since both these characters are creations of the author and do not exist otherwise. But that's not true. They exist for us, too, now. The author has made them live for us, and we, now we, too, are implicated by this you and I. The above passage from Spectres suggests that the ka, the life force, resides in a person's name, which does not die away. 
when Ashur then gently echoes the observation that there are people whose memory endures in language alone, she is reminding us of her task as novelist and Chagars as historian to give voice. Perhaps the novel is a place where the Ka may encounter other Ka's, all these specters whom the text tries to honor. Radwa Ashur, the real Radwa Ashur, outside the novel, once said in an interview that writing is a retrieval of a human will negated. I write, the space becomes my own, and I am no longer an object acted upon by history, but a subject acting in history. I'd suggest that when Ashur says, I, here, she could be speaking not only of herself, but of all those whom she calls forth in her fiction, these specters of selves. For the course of the novel, they too may become subjects in, not objects of, history. She lends them her agency, the strength of spirit she possesses in writing. Our final case study is a novel from South Africa, a country where only 20 years ago, with the end of apartheid, another history did in fact become possible. The novel is called Double Negative by Ivan Vladislavich, published in 2010. It tells the story of Neville Lister, first as a young man in 1982 in Johannesburg, when he spends a day shadowing an acclaimed photographer named Sal Auerbach. Then, a decade later, after the fall of apartheid, when he returns to his home country from London, where he had fled to avoid military service. And then, a decade after that, when he has himself had some minor success as a photographer. Throughout, the novel describes and refers to photographs we never see, photographs of the everyday people and places of Johannesburg through these tumultuous years. In South Africa, an edition of Double Negative exists in which the novel is published alongside a collection of images by the prominent South African photographer David Goldblatt. Here in the US and in the UK, the work is published as a standalone novel so that its photographs occur only in language. Already in the absent presence of these images, we begin to see how fitting the title Double Negative is. The novel's character, Sal Auerbach, is a stand-in for David Goldblatt, though I would be surprised if the photographs so precisely described in the novel correspond to any real images. Instead, by describing these non-existent photographs, Vladislavich continually asks us to imagine alternative documentations of the moments he's created in writing, moments which ostensibly only exist as such because they have been frozen in photographs captured in time. The image in language is offered as if it were a substitute for the photographic image, but since the photograph is imaginary, in fact, in a sleight of hand, the writing is only offering itself, redoubled. In this dance, the novel's structure echoes the grammatical phenomenon of the double negative, in which two negatives, I haven't not been there, cancel each other out. Somehow the doubling of absence becomes a presence. Indeed, the entire novel centers on a photograph that Sal Auerbach never takes. One day in 1982, he and Lister and a journalist plan to photograph the inhabitants, um, inhabitants of three randomly selected houses, but they only ever make it to the first two. The thought of this third house haunts Lister until a decade later he makes his way back there. There he discovers a widow whose husband once worked for the post office and who has kept a collection of dead letters 
letters so illegibly addressed that they can be neither delivered nor returned. Lister ends up taking possession of these letters, hoping finally to deliver them to someone, even if not their intended recipients. In the meantime, he takes to photographing people's mailboxes and people who come to their gates to pose by their mailboxes for him. And it's this series that gains him a small measure of artistic success. It could be considered cheating to include this novel in today's discussion at all, since, as I mentioned, it does not include the actual photographs, the documentary material at its heart. Yet the absence of this material beautifully illuminates uh, our concerns, I think. Perhaps the force of this absence is not unlike that of the negative of a photograph where dark becomes light and light dark. In double negative, our narrator returns repeatedly to the limits of photographic documentation. For example, saying of one of the subjects of Auerbach's photographs that you can see on her, the relief on her face as she drops from the fullness of life into a smaller, diminished immortality. Later, he warns that sometimes photographs annihilate memory. They swallow the available light and cast everything around them into shadow. Still later, he tells us that a photograph is a flimsy thing when you compare it to the world. It's always on the verge of floating away or turning to ashes. Both photograph photographers in the novel attend to everyday people, to the individual lives and stories that the grand scale of history cannot preserve. But those behind the camera are always aware that this preservation is also illusory and that it is precisely the fullness of life that is lost. Lister feels his own life has been lost to or within history. You could say that the worst years of apartheid pass me by, he says. Elsewhere, history would break over me like a wave that had already swept through the manor house and bear me off in a jumble of picture frames and paper plates. It is, I think, no coincidence that both the novel and its title refer to a technology film that has already been nearly abandoned, so that even this metaphor, the inversion of light in the photograph's negative, is already fading. Through the use of documentary material, each of these three novels incorporates and interrogates history, and reading each we witness not only what is there in the historical record, but what cannot be there. Beyond all these facts, we encounter the fact of loss. The document is always on the verge of floating away or turning to ashes. This loss of, for instance, the way of life of villagers in Egypt or Palestine, of the fullness of life in any one home, uh, in a range of political times in South Africa, of a letter never delivered, of an American history without torture, is irrevocable. And yet the novel is not nothing, as Vladislavich might have us say. Perhaps what literature may add to the story of history is a precise rendering of loss a few stories or figures to stand in for those we will never know, a dream of what might have been that reflects the loss that shadows how things are. Each of these novels pursues specters, an impossible task, but each succeeds in creating a space where, through the eyes of a narrator, through the words of the writer, we may witness what or who is not there. In our longing to know what we can't know, the fullness of life as lived by other people through history. As we read, we will at least not be alone. 
When I spent those four or five years witnessing or researching the Iraq War, I felt terribly aware of how little I knew and how much I could not learn. This was a war like all wars in that many lives were at stake, but none of them were my own. All I could do was to keep my eye on the line between what I could imagine and what I could never know, the line where presence and absence break from or tumble toward one another. As these three novels illustrate, this line, this distinction, is rarely clear. A novel allows us to spend at least a few hours here where story and history, self and other, imagination and fact, encounter and remake one another in each other's image. If we readers and writers can lose ourselves here, who knows what we might find. That's all. We have a minute if anyone has a comment or a yes. <laughs> just do the annoying thing of saying that that's a great question. Um, you know, because I, I, I think that's a, you know, very efficient way of expressing that, that sort of ethical quandary, you know, of when you are exploring a, a conflict or any historical subject, you know, are you, you going to use this work of literature as an occasion to create an exception, you know, to create uh, some sort of dramatic moment within that or, um, you know, something that's more, more fantastical or in which you're using imagination to kind of, uh, right, pull something from that situation and connect it to, to something else, to our present time, to anything, or do you want to, you know, do sort of the work of social realism and portray what you know what that situation was. Um, I don't have I don't have an answer to that um, because I I think both of those types of work can be really powerful or really vital. Um, but I couldn't say you know one or the other or even I can imagine even that it would be difficult to tell them apart in moments. Um, also. I hope that's not terribly unsatisfying as an answer. <laughs> Does anyone else have a question or a thought? We can also just get lunch, this is an idea. Excellent, well, I'll, I'll be here for a minute if anyone wants to chat. Um, thank you all.